Welcome back to Owned and Operated, where we dive deep into the businesses we own, the businesses we are acquiring, and we also bring on guests to talk about their operating struggles. If you like what you hear today, follow John and Brandon on Twitter. That's John at Wilson Companies and Brandon at Brandon Niro. Also, check out our weekly newsletter where we teach you how to be an effective operator. You can sign up by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or by visiting ownedandoperated.com. That's ownedandoperated.com. Check it out. Okay, today we have Reg Zeller joining us. Over the last four years, Reg has been buying and rolling up foundries and metal casting facilities. But before that, he felt like a corporate drone, trudging through his day-to-day work life and found his escape and new journey through ETA. Reg is actually our first guest who has bought and owns businesses in multiple states. The problems associated with a national operation are very unique, and today on the pod, John and Brandon grill Reg, trying to understand where he's been successful and how we might replicate that same success. Enjoy this episode. If you listen to our show, you know that we can spend months sourcing businesses, talking with them, negotiating LOIs, conducting due diligence all for a deal to fall through at the finish line. MicroAcquire solves that whole problem, whether you're buying or selling a business. As a seller, you're getting introduced to over 50,000 trusted buyers with total anonymity. As a buyer, you get to sort through profitable, vetted sellers and close in 30 days. We don't own any digital businesses yet, but over the next year, we're intending to grab a couple, and MicroAcquire is going to be our choice for a sourcing platform. Welcome back to Owned and Operated. We appreciate everybody's patience. We didn't have an episode drop last week. Something like buying a company or I don't know. Anyways, we are a little BS on that. We are a little occupied, but we're back. We're back in full swing. So if you're liking what we're doing, make sure to subscribe to the pod. Check out ownedandoperated.com. We've got a newsletter. We have a membership newsletter, which is really cool. We break down integration on our deals and follow us on Twitter at Brandon Niro and at Wilson Companies. So today we have. Reg Zelleron, welcome. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, so how about you just give us a 60-second spiel on what is it that you do again? <laughs> <laughs> About the same thing you do, piss my team off. So it's <laughs> nice, perfect. Uh, we roll up foundries. Simplistically is the easiest way to say it. Foundries still exist. And what a foundry is, is we melt material typically aluminum. And from that melted molten material, we pour it into a form and make a product. That product then goes to other customers. We've started about four and a half years ago with our first one since tucked up four and a half others, if you will, across the country. I like that. So yeah, we've got a, got a total of five of these things now. Yeah. The half would be it only utilizes the foundry. It's actually a, a marine dock business. So can't really call it a foundry. It is a captive foundry of one of what we have. We had one of our guys. He used to work oh, at a yeah. yeah. He used to work at a foundry. So it was really interesting business. Fifth generation foundry. I think it's shut down or about to be shut down at this point. But the environmental, yeah, it was the environmental. Apparently, that's a whole thing. With oh yeah, yeah, it was unbelievable. 
And it kind of reminded me of dry cleaners where anytime a dry cleaner has ever been, you can never do anything again with that soil. That was basically what happened. So this specific foundry was ruining the earth below it and the air above it. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a good reason why we do non-ferrous and including in that. So there's some, you can actually put lead. It used to be a lot of things had leaded brass. We do only non-leaded product. So aluminum doesn't have any lead in it or only trace amounts. But yeah, we're we're very, very specific about our environmental. We love businesses that are non-leaded, if you will. And as soon as they have or has have had any lead within it, we tend to run away, generally speaking. And it'll be to the point where even if they've converted over, we will say, listen, we'll take all your products that have used patterns, for instance, but if if those patterns are anything that is in existence, the machines, et cetera, have touched leaded material, we completely keep away from it and we will not buy the real estate that it sits on then. Yeah, that's the thing, right? It's the lead, it ruins the earth below it. So if you get stuck with the real estate of the business, then you're you're the one dealing with the APA. Yeah, typically, typically it's lead, but certainly there could be the way they used to finish parts or clean parts or any of that. There's a lot, a lot of things in industrial environments. And we always tell people when we're doing it, we own foundries and we are not real estate people. We enjoy owning the real estate when we can, but we're not developers. We don't want to be in the development game so we don't take any risks whatsoever. And there can be numerous aspects of it. A lot of times you'll see these manufacturing environments that have been maybe not just foundries, but they could have been anything. And one of the major things you see is not just what the process comes out of the manufacturing, but a lot of times you'll see buried oil tanks or fuel tanks of something of some variety. That's obviously the major one, just because they used so much back in the day. You know, they just have to stay away from it. So any of these, and you know, standard due diligence, phase one, phase twos, and pretty much go from there. All right. I feel like we accidentally dove a little, a little too deep, too fast. How about we talk about your first deal? <laughs> sure. So I was a corporate guy for 17 years, kind of in and out. You look of, like a corporate guy. Yeah. It's, it's I'm, the the one, I'm the one <laughs> in wearing a brewery t-shirt near the one in a button up. But anyway, uh, I digress. So the, uh, the, the corporate thing was never really what I did well. I moved up, did a lot of different things in from, I mean, literally engineering, marketing, product management, business development, you name it. I kind of touched it short of HR, probably. The from there, though, the people that we talked with were really, I'd sit across the, the table from folks like yourself, HVAC owners, distributors, et cetera, and just loved it. And so kind of always thought at some point in time, I wanted out, ran into an absolutely miserable boss, finally, to the point where I just said, I need to do something else, went home, talked to my wife and said, hey, guess what? You're going to be the corporate person from here on out because I'm buying a business or starting a business or doing anything to get away from this guy in this place. So walked in, first foundry I ever saw. I had literally never stepped foot in a foundry before. Technically, I had gone through and I'd done a, I'd seen a bunch of sims, signed a few NDAs, kicked the tires to that extent, but had never visited a business. This is the first you had business a background I in foundries, like something to understand the business, right? Nope. Nope. Okay. 
right. had never had never stepped foot in a foundry. I mean, I knew that they made products. I understood what a casting was, generally speaking, but I didn't know anything about the process or how it actually worked. I was probably like a lot of people didn't realize foundries are even in the U.S. anymore. So, you know, I walked in and just loved it. Right away, I was scared to death because it looks like it's 1960s, dirty and dark and hot and miserable. But, you know, it just became one of those things where I started looking at it and realized, hey, there could be really something here after a few days. And after going through the process, you know, kind of snowballed from there, but didn't know what SBA was, didn't know how I was going to finance it, was just told, hey, don't worry about it, you'll be fine. Jumped in and four months later, signed a deal. Like you didn't know about the industry, so it's not like you targeted it specifically. It sounds like you just came across a listing or something like that. So what'd you end up digging about this specific industry more than any other opportunity out there? This was an opportunity. That's probably the good way to say it. I liked a few things about it. You know, one thing I knew, generally speaking, I knew roughly I wanted to be able to own 100%. So do some sort of a deal where I could finance it. Second part being, I really wanted to make sure when we looked at the business that it didn't have too high a customer concentration, that, you know, kind of the traditional things that you look for and in due diligence of it wasn't suddenly going to be taken over by a different technology. The customers were very sticky. It'd be difficult. So kind of the traditional moats you think about around what these businesses have. And that's really the main reason why I did it. And I understood enough about manufacturing because I'd done a lot of this in my 17 years at corporate where I actually moved two or three facilities back from overseas because we could be much more successful with US-based manufacturing. And I thought there was an opportunity before a lot of other people thought there was that I thought we could be doing something, doing it well. We were just making a lot of dumb decisions in corporate and realized, hey, good products, high quality products on shelf, you can do something with as long as you market it and price it correctly. One of the things I think that's interesting about your business, maybe mine a little bit, not as much anymore, but you know, it, on Twitter, we are constantly reading and hearing from people on the search, right? They're on their hunt, but specifically searchers, right? Right. Searchers have recently taken interest in HVAC and plumbing a little bit. I think it's mainly HVAC, but I've never heard of anybody taking interest in foundry. <laughs> but I mean, that said, like I'm into it. I think it's cool. I just, it just doesn't hit any of the boxes that a searcher needs for it to fit their like Stanford program thing. It, exactly. But that's dope. Like it's a dope business. I think that you're hitting on some of the reasons why I liked it without knowing what, and again, I came in, I didn't know what a search fund was. I didn't know what ETA was until I jumped on Twitter like six months ago or three months ago, whenever you guys were pushing me into this thing, I explained what I did and they're like, oh, search, you're a searcher, ETA. Okay. I don't even know what that is. I just went and bought a business and moved on. But it's why I really like it because this is an interesting spot to be in, especially with founders, because in the 80s and 90s, as we moved so many of these foundries offshore, you know, 80% of these things went out of business. Well, with that meant that no talent was coming in. There's no knowledge left in the industry. So there's just no way to go buy one of these things and replicate what we're doing. You have to be large enough where you're either captive. You know, I mentioned this a few times. If you look at like what SpaceX does or what Tesla does, they're doing things with die casting. And that's purely foundry. It's incredible what they do, but those folks aren't going to come and run the size of the facilities that I have. They don't, it doesn't even matter to them because they don't see everything that we have to see. You know, they do one specific part of it or you're serving 
aerospace or automotive, you know, it's next to impossible to replicate what we do now until you get four, five, 10, whatever of these things. And that's going to be a two, three, five year journey. And at that time, you know, just like what you guys did where you started the academy to train people, we've had to do the exact same thing because it needs to be basics. I mean, it's really, really basic because that knowledge doesn't exist at all. Between the age of probably, you know, whenever they start out in their career, I don't think there's barely anybody under 55 or 60 that's involved in this industry, small side of this industry in the country. That's interesting. So yeah, that would make it pretty, you know, it's just a pond where other people aren't fishing. Yeah. Well, for now. For now. So yeah. Well, I mean, after point. this episode. <laughs> after this, I mean, <laughs> there's going to be tens or maybe hundreds of people that yeah. are going to be yeah. jumping I mean, into this. Brandon place. and I alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, Brandon, you, know, you guys haven't done any deals in a while. Are you guys ready for another one? You should be ready, right? Yeah. For anyone listening, I'm rolling my eyes <laughs> very deeply. Yeah. John's ready. John's ready for three more. And for anybody that's listening, John and I are, are very copacetic about this. Our, our teams just look at us like, would you guys please stop already? Just <laughs> yeah. let us. Please let us do anything. There, oh, there, there was actually a meeting yesterday where, I was, where I was asked to stop. <laughs> 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 and I was like, um, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, well. Back to you here. So, okay, so first deal, four and a half years ago, you sort of walked into it. You're like, hey, this this is cool. This is hot. This is tripping. Let's go buy it. How'd you end up financing it? Pure SBA deal. One of those 15% down my cash out of pocket, 10% seller financing, bank took the rest. Yeah. Really unbelievably simple, really no questions asked. And the amount of money that I put down, they gave back to me in a working capital loan the day I signed. So. It was really, really easy. The great part about this business is that if you look at the terms, there are some customers that pay really fast. There's some big customers, but not a lot that pay slow. I mean, slow being 45 or 60 days, but those are Fortune 500 companies. It's not like they're not going to pay. So within, I don't know, two, three months, we we were cash flow positive on the deal. Yeah, that's pretty great. How big was it? The business was doing somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.7 million in sales. Oh, that's like pretty good size. Yeah, about 2.7 doing about, it was a $2.1 million acquisition doing, you know, in the $600,000 neighborhood with 600000 in real estate and $150,000 in inventory. Yeah, that's a good size company. So, and is that the biggest currently in the portfolio? Yeah, that's about three times the size, a little more than that now when, when we started it. And then we've purchased others of them. Our process of doing this is we go find something that's small kind of go figure out what in that local area is the best one that we can buy. And we'll, we call that our beachhead. And then once we get that in a local area, then we'll do some tuck-ins underneath it. And so the first one, obviously four and a half years ago, we did one, one sizable tuck-in, one really tiny tuck-in there. And now the other ones we have just done within the last year. Or so they're, yeah, in that kind of three, $4 million range. And then really once we get them to grow, you know, we expect all of them to be to that seven to 10 million is kind of our goal for each one of the spots, but that takes a lot of capital work. It takes a lot of expansion. It takes a lot of hiring in order to get you to that spot. Sounds like you're basically executing a roll-up strategy. Is it easier in your industry? Maybe that's not even the right question. Is organic growth hard? Uh, Honestly, no. It's getting, let's say getting supply, getting capacity is hard because you have to find the people and you have to buy the machines to make that happen. 
And square footage, right now, right? Is that I'm sorry? What is square footage a large part of that equation? Traditionally, it has been, but we can take if you know what you're doing and you don't listen to the salespeople in this industry, you can take machines and do things exceptionally well. And I will not tell anybody this thing actually how we do it because we have a way of making product in a very small square footage that pumps out a lot of volume, something that we learned somewhat stumbled upon, but it's just optimizing your square footage of what you need. It's really about getting the right machine for the right job in the right square footage. So, you know, you can do in a 30 to 50,000 square foot place, we can do 10 million plus a year if we do it right, depending on what other value add services. But really for us, you know, we've done very minimal marketing. I have a really good marketing agency that's helped me with some of the brochures and the websites and keeping that up to date for us. But in reality, minimal SEO, no PPC. We've never had a single salesperson in their life other than me just telling customers, hey, by the way, we'll take more business at the beginning of this because I needed to. We were dropping like 10% a year for years when I bought the first one and continued on for the first six to nine months of when I owned it. But since then, once we started delivering quality products on time to our customers, I've never, I've never not had enough new business, you know, organic growth. It's just been that inorganic growth because there's only a certain strategic customer that I want to target in any geographic area. We go find those customers and we want to be in that specific geography and I need to go find. So I need to get into a new geography each time to find that customer that I want. All right. That makes sense. One of the things I always liked about property-based businesses, I'm trying to think of some other ones besides like manufacturing, even restaurants, honestly, is I like layout is meaningful. Grocery stores, that's another one. Like layout yeah. is like the game, basically. It's is that the case incredible. in Foundry? Absolutely. It is. You can do it. You can sub-optimize. Sometimes you almost have to just because you can't redo it. Once it's sitting there, there's only so much you can do without some what they call greenfield. If you're familiar with that term, greenfield being... Okay, so greenfield versus brownfield. Generally speaking, greenfield means you're starting completely from scratch. Could be a new building, could be you know nothing else in the building in your building. Brownfield meaning it's an existing structure, existing business, whatever, and we're changing individual pieces or parts or whatever of it out. So you know most of these things in what we call brownfields would be you can't go figure out you can you can't replace the whole thing at once because it's an ongoing concern. You have to figure out how you build ahead or shift work to other facilities while you go drop in that million dollar piece of equipment that might take six weeks to commission and get up and running. So if you're going completely from scratch, we don't have one of these in our portfolio yet because we haven't done a greenfield development. It's what I'm currently planning or working on as we speak. It's literally why I'm traveling up to our facility in New Hampshire right now. Once we do this, then I think we're going to have an absolutely killer footprint from a output per square foot. I think it'll be, if it's not world-class, it'll be right there at world-class, but it's so much about layout and the way you handle things and how you do it in our industry. And that's one of the things that's really hurt because if you can't get the right structure, you don't have you know a spanless building or you don't have the right you know amount of power in certain places or whatever it might be, you instantly will lose half your square footage to to what you need to be doing. So you mentioned with like the not only the layout but the current equipment you have, and then the problems obtaining further equipment to do more capacity. 
this equipment that you have that you're typically purchasing, you know, what's, what's the lifespan on something like that? Very dependent on the type. It is, foundries are really hard, as you can probably guess. When parts are moving back and forth, you can imagine sand in bearings and whatnot does not go well. So we break things a lot. And so depending on what you have, you, know, you buy high quality equipment, it'll certainly last you longer. Right now, you know, historically something that's lasted 30 years would be great. There's still some equipment around. We have it in our shop and you can rebuild, you know, some simple hydraulics, whatnot from the forties and fifties, but you know, that's manual equipment automation. Now, you know, you're looking at, it quickly becomes the life of the electronics more or less. And, you know, and then you're, if you think about, I'm not sure how familiar you are with manufacturing equipment, but a lot of times you'll have some mechanical system that's controlled by some sort of a control system, control system being PLCs, SLCs, computers, whatever. Then you need to, you know, the mechanical equipment will still be good, but all the processing, you know, the, the computer side of it will go bad. And once you have to upgrade that, it'll cost you the price of the machine sometimes to get that all fixed up by the time you actually go all the way back to fully operational. So it depends, but we look at all of our equipment that we need to, we expect a 10 year life. If we get more out of it, great. But a lot of times, you know, we want to see a payback in three to five years because there's a lot of equipment that could be obsolete in that amount of time, especially with things like 3d metal printing and a few other technologies coming down. Like do we need to pay attention to? Do you see any, as far as layout and the newer equipment when you're purchasing it, better square footage on savings, you know, smaller equipment, more efficient or anything like that? Absolutely. So we, because everything we do right now, our end goal at one of these facilities is to be lights out. So we put in more or less, call it, you know, SMEs, so subject matter experts and COEs, so kind of centers of excellence. So we'll have certain facilities, but we'll have one probably the first one that we did that will eventually be able to run lights out where you'll be able to put one automated piece of equipment in a, you know, actual footprint where it used to be one operator. We'll replace four of those operators in one, one position. And then we'll have all the mold handling equipment, what they call it, just to move the products around the facility, get the product ready to be cleaned and prepped and ready to ship. You know, we'll talk about going from 20,000 square feet to 8,000 square feet, maybe. Oh, wow. With less people or no people? Because you said lights yeah. out. To me, that's like you literally turn the lights off and leave. Yep. We'll probably get 80%. In that facility, we have a path. We want to get to about 80%. So the high running parts, we would be able to literally run. I mean, there'll be someone, you never truly get to zero because someone has to monitor the equipment, make sure it's running, et cetera. But essentially, you know, you'll have very, very minimal people that need to be involved in it. And I'll be honest with you, we have to do that because we can't get labor. And so you change very much the labor structure and and the people that you're going to need 10 years from now is going to be very different than what we need today. And that's part of what our differentiation is going to be, where we're going to continue to stay these small facilities, but because of our reach in our facilities, we'll be able to serve the small customers and the people that would, you know, the big foundries would never touch them. The people that are selling to Ford or Boeing would typically never talk to our customers. And that's where we're going to continue to focus on. And it's just, it's impossible to replicate except I think for our model until I come on this podcast and I tell her what you're doing. And now there's be all kinds of, we're all going to be competing. <laughs> it almost reminds me of the garbage trucks. Now like it used to be where it's physical labor. Someone actually in the back of the truck lifting the cans in. Yep. 
Versus now with those robotic arms, there's literally hiring people with robotic engineering degrees, electrical engineering degrees to run a garbage truck because of how sophisticated they are with technology. Yeah. I mean, I see it. You know, one of our septic trucks is like a computer on wheels. And it's actually more of a problem because we we don't have anyone trained to use it. Like we have one person. Yeah, so that's the, I mean, my people now that we have to hire, you know, you, traditionally speaking, people you hire to come in and run a foundry was very much a blue collar, you know, maybe an associate's degree, you know, minimal training. You learn most of it on the job and then send them to additional training to figure it out. But the people we're hiring now, I mean, obviously they'll still be the workers, but the people that are running the day to day, when we start to talk about these lights out foundries, my last three hires have been mechanical engineers, one with a robotics focus and two with more of like the, what they call electrical mechanical. So focus on the, the difference between those two, but yeah, it's, it's all going to be about programming robots and understanding automation and figuring out how to make that work. That's cool. So I think you are our first guest that has been on that is running a multi-unit distributed company. I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. We have a lot of folks who run multiple brands, but I can't think of anybody that's running companies in different states. So let's dive in. (laughs) This is interesting. This is the stuff, this is the hardest stuff to figure out. And I'm sure you had the same issue that I did when we were going multi-unit. Like there's no playbook. You figure multi-unit out by going multi-unit and it's it's a train wreck. So talk about your distributed company and how you manage it and lay yeah, it out. So what we learned, I think there's two different ways. Part of this was my corporate background. I'll be perfectly honest with you. If I didn't have this experience from corporate, I would have had no idea where to even begin to turn and understand it. So in corporate, we have this thing where everything is a matrix environment. Essentially, you have multiple bosses, depending on functional, regional, all this other different parts of it. For us, we initially tried to do this by hiring GMs in spots that would be very autonomous. So very decentralized concept being business we're buying could be run in that location because it was being run in that single location by an owner at some point. That has blown up in our face every single time we've tried it by (laughs) plugging in someone from the outside. It just doesn't work. And partly... What we've learned, or we think we've learned, after now a couple of successes doing it differently, was that we just operate at a completely different velocity than what the traditional industry looks at. Somebody that's running a shop anywhere else is either an owner-operator, or they're in a corporation where you know they only look at one piece of it. For us, the speed at which we change, execute, get products out the door, plus the bandwidth these people need to have, it just didn't exist. So what we actually figured out is that, you know, we've, you've mentioned this before, part of your flywheel and understanding getting into the shared services model and investing ahead. What we've learned in order to make this work right is that we need to start what we call GMs, but in reality, they're really just plant managers in other places. We need to start them out as simple as possible, let them get up to speed, understand the way we operate, and really, by doing that, the first step we do is we bring them into our one of our existing facilities first so they understand how we operate, the people, the way we like to do things before we actually do the acquisition. Then the day of the acquisition, that person comes with me. 
hey, we're the new owners, et cetera. Here's the new guy that's replacing the, the, you know, the owner leaving. I'll still always be around, whatever, but this is not my job. It's not what I do well. Here's going to be your guy anytime, whatever you need. But by that person spending time with us and then that person really starting on a very narrow focus, meaning you don't have to worry about any decisions outside the four walls. We'll make sure the material's in front of you. We'll make sure there's a production plan in front of you. We'll take care of the customers even right away. You know, we make sure everything is very, very simple and we let them build up from the very beginning. As the business grows, as it becomes more complex, as we add more sales into it, then we give them more and more autonomy. But it's really, we you know, we almost titrated into them, you know, very, very metered into what we give them so that they're not drinking from a fire hose from day one. I think I think I want to dive a little, I guess, even deeper into that. So sure. let's say let's say you're like, hey, John, come on down. Run run one of my locations for me. And of course, I say absolutely. Absolutely <laughs> I will. Because <laughs> yeah, we you're known to be such a great operator. This <laughs> really Really, that's my best. This is what could possibly go wrong with this thing? Okay, so obviously you offer me the job, and of course I graciously accept. So, what does it look like? You say you break this thing down to simple. Like, what exact tasks am I responsible for, and do I have to deliver on? Really simplistically, we have five things that we lay out for every single person in our company. They understand. So, this is what we tell people. I'll get to the specifics, but guiding principles of what we tell everybody health and safety of employees, customer service, quality products, delivered on time, profit. So literally those five things, every single thing you go through, every decision should be made going through that, first of all. So with that as the background, what we stick in front of them is a production plan and say, you know, here's the parts need to be built during this week. We typically, if they really want, we'd give them make this part this day, this part this day. It normally doesn't work out because we don't know enough about the facility. We could get to that point right now, today in our facility we've had for four and a half years, we can plan that thing down to the hour if we had to practically. This, you know, initially we'll just say, here's your production plan you need to get done for the week. Go chat with the existing employees that actually make the product, chat with the owner, you know, here's, here's what we're thinking. So number one, they know exactly what they need to go build. So getting product out the door is the vast majority of what they care about. Now, part of getting product out the door means that they're getting quality product out the door because if we need to scrap a lot of stuff or we pride ourselves on not letting quality escape, so in other words, bad product, get out the door to a customer. I don't like it when we catch quality issues internally, but I like it a lot better than when we don't catch quality issues internally. So we always focus on that more than anything is never let a customer see a bad quality product. I would rather be late on an order as long as we communicate with the customer than just ship a a bad quality product to somebody. So that really is what they need to, to focus on those two things. Then the third thing quickly thereafter, and if you kind of think through my, you know, as long as the employees are health, you know, health and safety of the employees and the customers are at least being communicated to, taking care of whatever, you know, the quality products and, and on time, then the last one is profit. So the profit thing that they think about number five has to be people and overtime. So really, if you step in day one, we're going to make sure you focus more on getting quality products out the door on time when we want you to. But then secondary is really going to be 
with X amount of sales, you're given this number of resources, figure out how best to use it. Now, initially, we won't really change anything up front when we step in day one. But if you came into one of our shops that was already operating, like we just had in our facility in Minnesota with a new guy that started like a month ago or whatever, is going to be the, he's the GM there. We already know the structure of what he has to control. His, we told him he started in September, first four months of the year. Month one, you're just going to be overwhelmed, just figuring out how this, all this place works. Spend time out there, meet the guys, understand what needs to happen. You know, we're going to give you a pass on September. The director of operations who used to be the GM, he did not get a pass on September. That's what I was doing 20 minutes before we started this conversation. And that's still his job to clean up. But now starting in October, that new guy is going to have to focus on getting quality parts out the door. He doesn't have to change anything. We need to hire more people, honestly, than what we have. So nobody's really worked. No one's got to the point where we've been overstaffed. We do it maybe for a month or two at a time, something where we know we have a little lull seasonality in the business. Those guys, it's so hard to find people. I just give them a pass on that though. Like, hey guys, we're not we're not laying workers off. We're not firing people. We're not doing whatever. Just get maintenance done or find something else for them to do or give them a break because they're going to be working like crazy. The only real thing we try and focus on is OT. I'll still spend the time on OT to get it out the door. But at the end of the day, normally we don't pack a schedule with more than what they should be getting out. It means if you're spending time with guys running overtime, it means that you're not getting the output you need to be and something is going wrong. And that's when we start to investigate in any of the businesses and find out you know, what we call the, the hole in the bucket, right? We fill the bucket with what we know should be the right amount of time. We only fill it to like 80 or 90% typically. So if you're, all, if you're still needing overtime to go over and above that, there's something broken that we need to go solve and investigate. And a lot of times they don't even realize it, especially when they're new. They just don't, they haven't seen it. They don't understand you have to stand over top of some of these guys. You know, this guy loves to wander around the shop. You have to make sure that your supervisor is in, you know, not letting that guy leave his machine. If you see him leaving his machine for any reason, you need to go say something. And that's sometimes hard for people that that's not a, it's not a comfortable conversation to have, but it's the structure that you need to give, unfortunately, in, in these manufacturing environments. That's pretty interesting. I think that mainly aligns with where we're trending. We just, hit multi-location like two months ago, three months ago, something like that. So we're still very much in org design mode. And I'm definitely digging the model that you just laid out for the location managers. Because I think, and people that don't own businesses, especially multi-unit businesses, probably don't have as good of a grasp on this. Hiring like full ass operators is insane. Like someone that can control the entire P&L is absolutely ridiculous. Very hard position to hire. But hiring people that only have to control cost of goods is a much simpler prospect. So I'm, I'm definitely digging that that's your model. What we think about that is that we find people that we think have a lot of runway. And, and I think of it that we're building them up to success instead of, and again, I will hire for culture and talent runway every single day over knowledge and ability to jump in and do a job again. Cause every time I've not hired for it, it's broken. It just, it just doesn't work for me no matter what I handle or what I do. So for us, I think these guys will eventually the, the people that we're hiring, I think they'll eventually get to full P and L management and, and operations. You know, it might take multiple facilities of mine for them to move in and out of, to do it. But if I think about it, that's kind of how I did it in corporate, you know, Running my, I think the last business I ran was probably 400 million people across five continents. Have they given that to me at 
you know, 25 or 27, I would have thought I could do it, but I would have ruined that. Right. I mean, it's, it's a different animal because I'd seen little parts of everyone and they'd kind of move me around to different opportunities and different places to be able to do that. And that's kind of just the same mentality that I have here is that you feed them, you feed them more than they can handle at all times just to continue to stretch them, but you don't feed them too much that it drowns them. Yeah. So above these location managers, or maybe next to, you know, I don't want to yeah. insert myself into your corporate structure, but how do they get support? Because they don't have full P&L responsibility. Sounds like they've got their, their boots on the ground, location managers, product out the door over time. This is cost of goods. Who's watching overhead? So easy answer is me. More complex answers. I think, I think you and I chatted about this specifically. I think I might've saw you tweet something. I'm not sure exactly, but each time that we add an acquisition, we add a person at headquarters and that's it. There's no, like my team can't come to me and say, oh, we've grown so much that we need to add another senior leadership person, you know, one of my staff per se. We put people in place and we have a plan and we know the next time we do one of these, we're going to add another person. So, you know, we added one, we did one acquisition and I added what eventually became the present COO, but that was with one, that person was really kind of the, the director of ops. And then when we added our, well, technically our third one. So second, he director of ops, he moved on to another role. Then we added a director of ops. We've added a technology person. We've added a controller. So it's really pretty easy. But what I do is I try and think through, if I walk through every single line item on my balance sheet, income statement, whatever it might be, I want to have one person's name there. And then associated with that, each one of my senior staff controls everything. Every single part of my business is able to be given to one person underneath how they handle it. It's just a, you know, it's the same thing. So if you're the controller and we've added three more businesses this year and you need to add someone to your team, I trust you unequivocally to go do the right thing. Now, that might be hiring virtual assistants. That might be hiring the IT guys to come in and do, you know, automation of the system such that, you know, you don't have to touch it, which I much prefer over hiring other people. That might be hiring a part-time bookkeeper. You know, I just give my team, we have that conversation. I understand it as we get more complex, we need to add to it. I just tend to push back because I hate throwing people at problems. I believe throwing technology at problems and choking the system, if you will, starving the system is a much better way to figure out and automate and do whatever. I think when people are given, if you just throw money or people at problems, it tends not to work very well. I think that you get creative when you have to think through different ways to solve. And that's not saying we won't spend money where we need it. I just think that it's a much better way to solve a problem when you say, hey, I don't need to hire a $80,000 bookkeeper, I can just figure out how to automate all of our ERPs and how that talks in the system in the background. We've been talking a lot about shared services on Twitter recently. I think people are finding it interesting. So let's dive into yours. What's the team comp look like? So for everything that we have, quite literally anything that is not direct operations inside of the four walls of a remote facility is shared services. So, you know, again, engineering, finance, operations, operational planning. By that, I mean, you know, buying material, planning when orders need to be built. Everything is shared services across. So anything that a facility needs, anything that an individual person needs can be done 
the only thing that we use locally is what needs to happen locally. So for instance, if you need maintenance teams, if you need IT teams, you need any of that, we will trying to think. I think every facility we contract out with third parties. So we do preventative maintenance and have an actual maintenance company that we use in each of our facilities that come in, they make sure we're doing the work. If something breaks down, you know, they'll do some simple stuff inside with the production people, but because it's so hard to find workers to begin with, if I can find somebody good, I'm not going to have them do maintenance. I'll use a third party. So anytime that we could outsource stuff that is not strategic, we'll absolutely do that. And really then everything else remotely is just about getting product to the door and everything possible is done. I think you've talked about a payroll, 401k, you know, so any of the HR stuff, any of that, we, we still use outsourced HR and we haven't gotten to the point where we're doing budgeting or any of that just because our facilities at this point in time, you know, financial planning, it, it isn't really needed. It's more, it's more about building capacity and executing on our plan. The rest of it is, you know, just, I don't see the value in it yet. I'm sure I will soon, but just not there yet. Well, I think you've already started budgeting in some way. You know, you hand production plans and you hand, here's the amount of resources you can spend on staff at your facility. I mean, that's budgeting. And maybe that's all the budget that those location managers need. Yeah, we're not getting to the, and this is partly probably PTSD for my corporate days. Whenever I hear budgeting and, and everything else, it's, you're going to have monthly reviews. If you don't hit it, mm. you know, you're going to get your hand slapped or we're going to look at your metrics at the end of the year and you're going to get your bonuses and your promotions and everything. It's not to that level, right? It's more of, I kind of think of them more as guidelines. Do the right thing. Let's chat about it. We more have budgets in place just to make sure we're not letting things get out of control or that we're missing something that is getting out of control. It's just, it's mainly there for us to use as a, an indicator system to make sure that we're not screwing something up or that we get, we get an early indicator that, that of what's coming. I guess just now I'm curious because we're talking about labor budgeting. What does that look like as far as your industries? What do you expect as far as we call it field labor but for you, you know, the foundry's labor in, in comparison for margin? So we typically, what I communicate to everybody, and I'm not, tell me if this doesn't answer your question, but I break down our industry or my business specifically into, if you look at sales, 25% should be labor, 25% should be raw material, 25% should be overhead, including all the shared services in corporate and 25% should be profit. Now, each time that shifts around a little bit, but you know, I think of specifically inside of labor that varies greatly anywhere from, you know, a new person that comes in probably starts at 20 plus dollars an hour with overtime their first year with zero experience. They don't need a high school degree. They'll be a multi-time felon half the time. You know, that's a $60,000 a year job. And so as that grows, you're probably getting folks into eighty, ninety, dollars $100,000 a year as they learn and, and understand what they're doing and become not just good at getting product out the door, but also starting to learn the whys of making a good product to get out the door. That's really where we start to find a lot of value is when they can start to understand the correlation between A and B and not you know, kind of the causation correlation argument. But if I make a bad part, what happened upstream as to why? And 
that those are the people that become our supervisors. Those are the people that continue to move up in our organization. Those are people that make a lot more money in our organization because we don't need to bring in one of those shared services headquarters type folks, you know, or spend time with the GMs or you know, plant managers, whatever you want to call them, and have to use their engineering degree. You know, we continue to think of everything in our company as sort of the iceberg, right? We try and push more and more underneath the water of the iceberg that the workers are able to solve without needing to escalate up the chain of command. What does turnover look like in that? So typically, if we get a person to stay for a year, even six to nine months, they'll stay for 20 or 30 years. If we talk about the beginning, you have a revolving door of 10 to 20% of your employees. I think I've pointed this out on Twitter earlier. We've had roughly a thousand applicants in our business and we do all of our background checks and drug screens and everything else after 45 days. Of the thousand applicants roughly we've had, I've run one background check this year. So you could probably do the math on that. And technically we've had two other people that came in without it, but it's a revolving door of people. They last a half a day, a day. And that's just the end. Again, depends on the depends on the facility, but 10 to 20%, you know, you're looking at every single year at least you're replacing. And sometimes you're replacing that same role 15 or 20 times in a year. There's been, there's been some roles we replaced multiple times in a month, every single month for the last three years in our facility in Minnesota. But part of that is that we we're growing. And as soon as we find somebody that sticks, that person will then be with us for the next 20 or 30 years. Right. And so we have to continue to hire all the time and just continue to throw good people at it until we build a crew And I think if we would stabilize and stop growing in any facilities, we'd probably have really stable crews because we've had to hire so many people. It's just, you know, we've continued to grow 20, 30, 50% a year. So we're just, we're always trying to catch up on hiring and and we never stop hiring. Every single person that applies, we just tell them, Hey, come in. You want to come take a look? We'll walk them around. We'll give them a chance. We'll just tell them, you know, this is a essentially a two month trial period at 45 days here's everything you need to go through. If you make it to that, awesome. If not, we'll go from there. Are you able to run like a 24-7 operation there or how many shifts you're working? We stretch some portions of our shift out or of our facility out to two shifts, but because you need that knowledge, partly with breakdowns, partly with just understanding what makes a good part, every time other than the few select portions of our facility, every time we've tried to go to two shifts, you just can't get the knowledge. You get people and they start making good money. They just don't, the shift premium doesn't matter as much to them anymore. So they just don't want to do it. And we just have never been able to get consistently a good second and or third shift. That's also part of the reason why the closer we get to lights out facilities, the better off we are because in those numbers that I gave you guys earlier, that's with only running, you know, mainly manual labor on one shift with a little bit of extension on the second shift. You know, I think these same facilities we're talking about can be 50% greater or whatever. If we could figure out a way to make these easier jobs where you take the skill and knowledge out of the manual process and put it into an automated process, that that is a game changer for us. That'd be interesting. As far as, so your capacity, right? If you get work, if you work towards a lights out facility, 
assuming you could find, you know, the the operators from machines to work at three shifts and your growth. I mean, it says you, you should be able to fill a 24 seven operation. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I and mean, you know, the big thing, this is where it comes down to <laughs> not a chicken or the egg exactly, but our customer bifurcates into two pieces. One is a big fortune 500 company that we're doing the tail end of their products, the five, 10, 20%, whatever it might be, right? A hundred thousand dollars on $10 million buy. The rest of it's coming from China or Mexico or wherever, low cost countries. We're doing the real low volume, high churn, et cetera. So that's one of our comps. That customer doesn't care where we build in the country. They have a budget to ship. They're used to it. We'll make it, send it anywhere. The small customers, those are the ones we really focus on if you think about how our breakdown is, those are the guys that need to, or they want to be able to get up in the morning, get their kids off to school, drive up, see us, have lunch, shake hands, see their product being poured, drive home and be there for dinner time. Right. I mean, that is a huge part of our customer base, probably, I don't know, 60% at least. And in order to do that, you need to be within 200 to 300 miles. Right. So we've just drawn these big concentric 500 mile circles and said, okay, we need to have the best facilities in each one of these places. And when we get there and we start to do that, then there's only so many of those. So for me to get to a pure 24 seven lights out, I don't need it in all of my facilities. I need it in one or two or three, right? Depending on how big we get and what we do, because that I'm not going to need more than that capacity. I'm going to need that quick turn, very fast understanding what I need to do in those facilities locally, right? And that's where, so all of our facilities will always have some level of manual parts, I believe. It might be simple automation, but it's not going to be robots and cobots and lights out. And that's what we're really trying to figure out is which way, what we need to do and where we need to do it. And that's a constant strategic struggle for me in my head of, do you go spend a million dollars to do the machining or or automation, or do you go spend, you know, more money on facilities or people or whatever it might be? That's wild. I wish we could remote control septic trucks. <laughs> you will be soon enough, man. Or like trash trucks. Tesla's building a semi. Someday it'll happen. Throw a tank. I don't know how you're going to get to it, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be pretty sweet. Get a robot, drive it in there. Yeah. Use a bomb. All right, so man, we okay. So we dove multi-unit. We talked about your first deal. What's coming up next? Man, I am right at a giant inflection point. There are some, you would ask me this question one month ago, two months ago, my answer would be totally different. I was 100% convinced that I was going to stay probably somewhat slow growth, finance this myself, not give up any equity or anything that I'm going to do. And now in the last two, three weeks, just incredible opportunities have been laid at my feet where because of there's so many supply chain disruptions, there's so many opportunities to procure these places. I've already talked to all of them. I'm really at a point where there's a question on financing and a question on getting the amount of capital needed. And that paired with, can I go hire the talent that I need in order to make that happen? I don't know how to answer that for you right now. I just, I'm right at that spot where I'm not exactly sure, partly because I jumped into this and I think that part of the reason why we've been successful is that we've 
been able and willing to build for the long term without thoughts on how that pays back directly and what that means, not just one quarter or four quarters or you know three years from now, but what this means in 10 or 20 or 30 years. Now I'm really starting to think, you know, can I do something on this and take this business to a hundred million dollars or whatever the number is across the country in the next two years, three years, five years. And I think I can do that. It just means I'm going to have to sacrifice some other pieces. But the more I talk to people, it's an interesting niche in that I don't know who else is going to be able to do this. And if I don't do it, I'm also a little concerned that all these places disappear and all these good US-based jobs and companies and everything else continue to disappear. So this is weighing heavily on me right now because it's a substantial strategic change and a substantial kind of mindset change for me, partly because I'm going to lose somewhat of control, but also I'm concerned I'm going to lose a lot of my culture and what makes us good too. So I don't have a great answer for you. Talk to me in you know four months or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Let me know what you did. It is an interesting one. And we, you know, we're dealing with the same decision. Do you continue to buy? Do you move up market? Do you chill? Do you bring on minority investors? You pass a certain size and yeah, the decisions get weighty quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they get the best people. I mean, that's part of it, right? If you want to do this and you want to keep really good people employed, I mean, obviously we joke about it. Poor folks like Brandon and my team have to deal with this. But, you know, if you stagnate for too long, those folks get bored. And honestly, it happened to me. That's part of the reason why the president left in my company. And part of it is I did the same thing. I can't blame anybody. I job hopped every 18 to 24 months for 17 years. You know, just you need to keep interesting aspects coming and growing and or, or not. You know, you're not going to get the best people to do it. Mm-hmm. it. Just isn't going to. Yeah, I agree. Do you have any final wisdom you want to share with the audience about how they should come and compete with you? <laughs> <laughs> the funny part is you think I have wisdom. That's a whole other story, but I think I've talked about this a little bit. And if not, you can read my Twitter feed. I'd be happy if people would come and compete. That'd be great. I just don't see how it's possible because there's so many places that are for sale that I know of that I'm talking to. I just don't know how anybody else does it. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, we started four and a half or five years ago. The amount of talent that has left the industry through retirement in the last five years is incredible. Every single one of my facilities that we bought had their key, if not their number one key person, up to their three key people quit. And that's the story every single person I talk to. The people that own these things are in their 60s or 70s. And the place I'm talking to right now, the roll-up that I'm, we're looking at, these guys are in their late 60s and still working five or six days a week in their shops, like doing actual foundry labor. So someone wants to buy it and spend a bunch of money on those, put a ton of automation in, and then go bankrupt so that I can buy it for pennies on the dollar in three, five years. Like That'd be great. I'd love to see that happen, but yeah, I probably wouldn't advise it, so... Yeah, that is interesting. Very different labor problems than our industry. We have the high class, blue collar folks, professional folks. But, you know, these guys are craftsmen. They're masters of their art. So, you know, we've had a lot of people ask us about staffing problems and staffing shortages and, and how are we dealing with all of that. And like, obviously, there's a blue collar 
staffing issue, but I don't think we have it anywhere near as bad as, you know, stuff like what you're doing. We, I mean, we definitely don't, you know, these guys are craftsmen and just a lot of latent talent still in the industry. Whereas you have to figure out how to almost McDonald's your foundry business. You can't do the old school way of doing it. You can't have knowledge in one person's head to run a foundry anymore. It's impossible. And that's how they used to do it. There was one owner operator or one key person and it just doesn't work. It just, you don't, you can't build that talent fast enough in order to do it. You have to, to your, you know, your analogy, McDonald's that it's the only way and you need the knowledge first to have it. Thankfully now we have it, you know, now we just got to replicate it and grow it out. Awesome. All right. If people want to follow you, where can they find you? At Reg Zeller on Twitter is where you're going to get all the good stuff. If you want to see the corporate version, you can go find me on LinkedIn. But <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of folks on there that it's funny. Even when I post some of these podcasts or some of the simple stuff, it's just the backlash on there. I'm like, ah, why? Nope, this out eh, is what it is. But mm-hmm. well, man, thanks for coming on today. This was awesome. I feel like this was a masterclass on running multi-unit and antiquated businesses that nobody else is looking at. Like, this is dope. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And for everybody else, anything I can do to help, honestly, DMs are always open. I love this stuff. I love helping other people. I think this is awesome to get people into this space and do whatever we can. 